This is Prime Connections, and we're your hosts. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jackie. Today we wanted to tell you about a case brought to us by one of our listeners. This happened in Washington Township, Michigan. This is a case that is very important because it highlights that domestic violence has no boundaries and that anyone of any circumstance is not exempt from it. This case gained national attention. This is the tragic case of Tara Lynn Grant. Now let's get into it. Tara is one of two siblings. She grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. She attended community college after high school and then transferred to Michigan State in Lansing, Michigan. She graduated from Michigan State University in 1994 with a bachelor's degree in business administration and an emphasis on marketing. After college, she went to work for Washington Group International, and that is a Boise, Idaho-based company. She worked her butt off and she got to the top. In 2006, she became a lead executive for the company and ran the Puerto Rico office. Her sister described Tara as having an infectious personality. Tara's favorite season, just like many Midwestern women, was fall. She loved the time because she loved spending time with her two kids outside doing all the fun activities for fall. Stephen Grant was her husband. But however, he was a very troubled child from articles and interviews that I have read and watched. He grew up in the Metro Detroit area and attended community college. Then he transferred to Michigan State in Lansing as well. He dropped out and took a position with a former state senator and he always aspired to work in the political field, but that dream was very short-lived because he ended up getting fired and then he ended up working for his dad's um, tool and die shop. They met around 1994 because they were both students at Michigan State University, and they had been on one date, but Tara originally was not impressed by him. She brushed him off, but when Tara's grandma died, she must have said something to him or he heard about it in some way, and he showed up to her funeral, which was in the Upper Peninsula, which was hours away from Lansing, Michigan, and he told her that he just wanted to show her support and he cared for her, and after that, they ended up returning to Lansing, and that's when their relationship started. And then it advanced to a proposal in front of Detroit Institute of Art, which was sentimental because Tara loved art. In their marriage, she was the breadwinner because he worked part-time for his father's tool and dye shop, and he was the primary caregiver of the kids at the time. When Tara started becoming more successful at work, according to Stephen in interviews, their marriage started suffering because she didn't have as much time because she did have a lot of stuff on her plate. At one point, Tara heard Stephen on the phone with a former ex-girlfriend, which obviously now creates a seed of doubt in Tara's mind because she's gone multiple days a week working in Puerto Rico, which is hours and hours away, a whole plane ride away. So she can't just like leave work and go make sure he's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And there was also speculation on Stephen's part, which... There has no, there's been no proof of this, but this is what Steven said to the media that Tara had contact with her former ex-boyfriend, which again, there was no proof of that. That was just something that he said. When Tara was working, the family needed help raising the children. So they hired an au pair, which an au pair is usually a young foreign person who comes to any country um, doing domestic work for a family. It could include anything like housekeeping, child raising. Most of the time it does include childcare help. And the family boards the person at their house, and they do that because they want to learn the family's language. Wow. So it's basically a nanny, but they live in the house, they are learning the language, and sometimes they'll go to school, but it just depends. So at one point, the au pair and Steven started having an inappropriate relationship. They said it was only consisting of kissing and cuddling in the couple's bed, of course, while Tara was at work. And... I read something 
he would do really toxic things to Tara. So while she was away, he would be like, oh yeah, I'm just laying in bed with her. Like, oh my God. Like he was extremely toxic and he would always just say like mean things like to her. Like taunt her. Taunt her. And there's nothing she can do because she's a whole plane ride away. It's like four hour plane ride from Detroit to get to Puerto Rico. Tara knew their relationship was hurting. She tried to salvage it for the children and for herself potentially. So she was trying to work on her communication skills. She was planning date nights when she was home. And obviously it didn't work because he had already formed a relationship with their au pair and he had contact with his ex-girlfriend. And Tara was gone Monday through Friday for work in Puerto Rico. So she was gone. There was no coming back and forth. That's just how it was. And when she told Stephen that she had to leave on Sunday instead of Monday, it caused a huge argument, which leads into the timeline. The timeline that I'm about to give you is facts from his written statement when he ended up confessing to her murder. So he says Tara came home around 10 p.m. She was unpacking her things, and it was from her business trip she had just been on. Words were exchanged, and he said something about her returning home early, and then he said something about her traveling with one of her uh, work colleagues, and he always would just say like really nasty stuff about her traveling with this person, which totally out of her control. I'm guessing it was probably a male because it was an issue. Yeah. Um, but it, it is what it is. That's her job. It started to upset Tara, and she ended up telling him, hey, I'm going to be working on Sunday instead of Monday, so I have to leave a day earlier, which really ticked Stephen off. Which is surprising, because with him having an affair, you would think she, he would want her gone more. You would think. But you, obviously not. You would think. So he said something mean to her, and then she turned away. Then he grabbed her wrist, and she said something along the lines of, what are you going to do, kill me? And he claims, in his words, he let her go, and then he said he would never sink to that level. He claims he said the meanest thing he could possibly think of, which resulted in her smacking him, which I'm sure it was something along the lines of his affair or something stupid, but I don't know for sure. He never mentioned what he said to her. Then he claims he pushed her, making her fall back onto the floor. Tara started cussing at him, saying she was going to take the kids and the house, and he was going to be effing homeless, and he was going to go to jail, and he would become a loser like she always knew he was. Then he grabbed her neck, and to stop her from talking, he found himself squeezing her neck, choking her with his right hand. And then at some point, he realized she was just, like, looking at me, so I put gray underwear and a shirt over her face so I didn't have to look at her, and I continued to strangle her for four minutes. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. And once she was dead, I started to panic. I had to get her out of the house, and I couldn't carry her, so I grabbed my belt, and I wrapped it around her neck, and I pulled her down (gasps) the stairs. Oh, my God. When I got to my truck to try to pull her up, I couldn't lift her, and then the belt broke. And then she hit the ground, and it sounded like a watermelon hitting the (gasps) ground, so I knew she was dead. And it was the most disgusting noise I've ever heard. Then I wrestled her up into the Trooper SUV, which was hers, and I hit her. Right while that was happening... All their two young children were sleeping in their bed. And then moments later, after he hid Tara, the au pair came home. He asked the au pair earlier that night to come home before Tara got home so they could make out a little bit. She got home and he was like angry. He's like, why are you here? And she's like, well, you asked me to come here. And he was like, well, Tara came home and she got super mad at me and she just left. He came up with that story saying she left in a dark vehicle out the garage. And I don't know who she got into the car with. She just gave me no explanation. She just left. Then he was so distraught from this situation of Tara leaving and he wanted the nanny to feel bad. So 
The only logical thing for him to do was to invite her into their bed and have sex with her right after he kills his wife. So he's like getting off on it. Apparently. So on Saturday, February 10th, we don't know exactly what happens. Um, He doesn't mention really anything in his confession, his written confession. However, uh, most of the crime he did commit against Tara had to have led into the early morning hours of the 10th because if she came home at 10, he strangled her for four minutes. It would be close to the early morning hours. So after that, he starts leaving fake voicemails, like calling her saying... Hi, you did put back on the spirit thing. Please give me a message and I will get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. Hey, it's after two by now. Quarter after two. Um, I just want to know what's going on. Um, I think you owe me and your kids. Uh, at least, the, the very least, the, you owe us a little bit of an explanation. Call me. Next time I call you, pick up your phone. Please do not hit ignore. It's, it's absolute. That you can call me or your kids. It is. Pick up your phone. Or call the house. Call somewhere. Call me. Call myself. Call the kids. It isn't this bad. I know you're mad. I'm mad. You're traveling this much is not right. Just home. Just like acting wow. like the whole like oh, you left me, just putting on a whole show. Playing it up, yeah. Playing it up. And then he finally ended up calling his friends and her family or her friends and asking everyone, have you seen her? Like, I haven't seen her. She left. And he comes and he keeps saying that stupid story. Oh, she got in a dark car. So Sunday on the 11th, he took Tara's trooper to his father's tool and die shop. And he decided that he had to fit her into a Rubbermaid container in his words, I took the container and Tara's body out of the truck and pulled, I pulled back to, to the back of the shop and I tried using a bow saw blade to dismember her. His first attempt at dismembering his wife and mother of his children didn't work, so he switched to a different blade and that was a hacksaw blade and that did work to cut something off, he says. According to ABC News article that covered this case, he said he was drinking whiskey and he was so distraught about doing this, he threw up. Her body was so stiff and in a weird position that even after he cut the one part off that didn't fit completely in the Rubbermaid container, he ended up just cutting everything off. He cut her into multiple pieces to fit her. Oh, does that make sense? Yeah. So eventually everything of her fit into that container because he cut her up so many times. He wrapped all the pieces in a plastic bag in the torso everything all the supplies into this container and he he did make sure in his written he said it, it all fit like just like no big deal like everything but he's so distraught he's that so, he's throwing up yeah and yet no big deal I, i'll just cut up my whole wife's entire body and wrap each individual piece in plastic but i'm so distraught I'm, yeah yeah 
Yep. So then on Monday, February 12th, in the morning, he said he found a spot near Stony Creek, meaning Stony Creek Metro Park in Shelby Township. And this spans across two different counties. It's huge. And that's where he had all the evidence. He came back later that night to distribute the body parts, attempting to hide them under logs and trees. And he hoped that wildlife would just take care of the evidence for him. Wow. He ended up I heard in an interview, I couldn't find articles that specifically said this, though, that he put the Rubbermaid container on a sled, that one of his children's sleds, because it was snowing still, and he, like, just pulled it around, like, just placing pieces of her oh everywhere, and then he's so stupid, he let the sled go, and it started going down a hill, and then the Rubbermaid container s- fell over and spilled out her body parts all over the thing, and so he starts panicking, hoping no one sees him. He's, like, picking it back up and puts it back in the container. Oh, my God. Like, he's the stupidest criminal I've ever even heard about. And it gets worse. Like, it just, it gets worse. <laughs> That's why. Oh, my God. So, I told Jackie not to read this because I wanted her to be surprised when I told her each of these things because this case is so like so shocking the initial shocks already happened Mm -hmm. but i'm gonna keep going on monday is when he distributed all the pieces of her body and then on tuesday we're not really sure what happened he doesn't really mention much in his written statement about tuesday but then on wednesday the 14th on valentine's day is when he finally reports her missing five days later oh that's a long time Mm mm-hmm Stephen Grant notifies the Macomb County Sheriff's Office that his wife was missing. At this time, he does mention that they did get into an argument prior and that he hadn't seen her since. He said, I overheard Tara talking to someone on the phone saying, I'll meet you at the end of the driveway. Then he saw her get into a dark colored car that drove off and he had not seen or heard from her since. And all I could do was close the garage door, he said. I was done. I was tired of the bickering about traveling and I gave up. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. She remains missing for three weeks. And during this time, Stephen gave pleading interviews to the public. Please help me search for Tara. Oh, this uh, happened to Tara. This, and he's just like letting them know all of these things about their relationship. He took every single chance he could get on TV to do interviews or in the newspaper. He loved the media attention like so much. He took, and when I say every chance, I mean every single chance. If he could just gross and it's so stupid like if you do something don't go all over the media oh my yeah well and this is the thing he used that outlet as an opportunity to talk poorly about her that's when he started telling everyone well she had that um affair with her ex-boyfriend potentially and she did all of these things and she was just a really bad mother and i was the one that raised the kids no not true she was actually a wonderful mother but that those are just the things he was saying so he not only is all over the media just wanting to be in the attention he's also just talking poorly about her which obviously lights a little light bulb in all the investigators head so he's already being one he was already being looked at as a suspect because you just admitted you had a conversation that didn't turn out very well and now your wife's missing Mm -hmm. they're already looking at him so on the turning of her 10th anniversary there was coverage of Tara's case on Channel 4's news outlet. And the main people that handled Tara's case from everything that I've looked into, they're they're local, is Hank Winchester and Karen Drew. And they were all over. Basically, a little rundown of what has happened. So Stephen wanted to become like Hank's best friend. He was constantly texting Hank, letting him know like, hey, do you think it's weird if I go get a haircut? Because I know they're out doing like a search party for her right now, but I really need my haircut. You're concerned about getting your haircut and your wife's been missing? Who cares? You, like, most what? of the time when you see someone who has a missing family member, they look distraught 24-7. They don't really care about their appearance. They are just like, listen, hear me out. This is what the last thing happened 
please help me find them. They don't yeah. care about whether or not their their haircut is perfect. Mm-hmm. Then he was like, do you think it'd be weird if I like went on a jog? Like, do you think the media would like get mad at me for that? Like, is that weird? Like, I I just I'm getting so stir crazy. I want to go outside and I want to go do my normal activities. Oh my god. And then he asked the newscaster if he wanted to go to a bar and play trivia with him. Oh my god. Yeah, he's just like he's doing all of these stupid things and the newscaster's like you know, it made me uncomfortable, and of course I said no about going to trivia with him. He was just nonstop talking to this guy. It's like, I'm the news reporter. I'm not your freaking friend. Like, That's why are you messaging exactly me? what Hank Winchester said when he did, like, their review of everything. <laughs> That's so weird. Karen Drew was the person going all over. She went to Germany because the au pair got sent home from the company when they found out your employer is missing we're mm-hmm. sending you back home because they th- they started thinking that sh- something happened to her something bad because a little bit before that or maybe it was after i couldn't find directly when this happened but karen drew went to puerto rico she started s- passing out flyers because they thought originally she had just went to puerto rico after their fight they were like screw it she got on the plane she went to work the way that she was supposed to yeah. and then they got there and they were like she never came back she's not here they knew who she was but they didn't really talk to anyone because they were like she's not here um, the only thing I know is she works in this office and that was it. So she went all over Puerto Rico, passing out missing flyers. Obviously there was no leads because they couldn't find her. And then Karen also went to Germany to interview the au pair, not to like make her feel bad or anything, but just to get more information because as soon as the employers of the au pair, I, d- I don't want to mention her name. I really don't think that that's necessary and no. I'm not trying to get anyone to shame her in any type of way, but because she was a young girl, like she was impressionable. And Stephen Grant took advantage of that. Well, and there's also the language barrier and people wishing to live in America. And so they do things they wouldn't normally do. Exactly. And that's one thing that Karen Drew even mentioned. She's like, I wasn't going there to, you know, yell at her or anything. I just wanted to gain as much information as I could because we knew after so many weeks that maybe she wasn't ever coming back. Mm -hmm. And so... She went all over. This was national. Everyone was talking about Tara Grant at some point in their home if they watched the news. Yeah. On Saturday the 24th in February, Stephen Grant goes back out to recover Tara's torso because he heard that they were going to do a search through there. And he was like, I didn't hide it very well. So he goes back. My God. Yes. You're kidding me. I'm not. So he goes back and gets her torso. And I know that my tone might sound off, but I just think this man's the biggest idiot. And he's a huge, to be completely frank, he's an asshole. I I don't like him at all. And he's very like ignorant and cocky and like thinks he can, oh, no big deal. I'm just going to carry body parts. I will get away with it. Right. Like he's so, so dumb. In interviews, he talks about it a lot. That's why police were like, we got to keep going back to mm-hmm. Stony Creek because this man has mentioned this multiple times. Like, what, Why would you even mention it? He was like, that's our favorite place to go. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he's basically, and if you go back and rewatch some of the interviews, it, he's like telling on himself. Literally. So He's like hinting like, yeah, let me keep talking about the same place over and over again because I didn't hide her body there. Right. And when police did their original, like, investigation of the area, they didn't find anything. Because, like I said, it spans two counties. Mm -hmm. So the police went on on the media and they were like, hey, if you're in the area and you see anything abnormal, you're walking your dog, you're with your kids, doing anything, report it. We need to to know because this is an area we're looking at. And then a lady who was walking her dog found something. She Uh found a weird plastic bag that was all taped up. She was, like, the perfect witness. She grabs it. And then takes it home and doesn't open it. She calls police immediately. She's like, I found this. 
And I think it might have something to do with the case. Maybe it doesn't. But I just wanted you to know because that's what you just said on the media. Let us know if you find something. So she gave it to them. And they opened it up. And there's bloody rags, metal fragments, just things that you knew something happened. Yeah. And then they tested it. I can't believe she grabbed it. Well, it was... She said there was red stuff in it. She didn't know, and she didn't want to leave it out there because if it blew away or something... Or if someone came and got it. Yeah, she did the right thing. And so her she didn't just she didn't tamper with it nothing so everything was perfect so they did the testing and it was human blood and then they found out oh crap this is Tara Grant's blood and wow. then that's when they start doing the whole thing and that's when Stephen Grant's like oh, I got to go back and get the torso because okay, I didn't that makes hide sense, it well yeah. and that's when this happens and this is my favorite part because this just is how stupid this man is so he calls Hank Winchester and he says, hey, I found some footage from Christmas, and I want you to come over so we can share it. Because at that time, they were telling him, like, get real footage of her so that people get to know her. She's that they She forms a connection with them, so they want to help more. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, I found this footage. Come on over into the garage. We'll do the interview in the garage. Tara's torso was in the Rubbermaid container, and he wanted that in the clip while they were doing it. You're kidding. I'm not. He didn't specifically say that, but that's why he wanted to hold the interview in his garage. And so with her body oh right my behind God. them. Right behind them. But here's what happens. The cops they're like, mm, we found this, and that's super close to your house. So now we're gonna get another search warrant. So they served him the search warrant. And as Hank Winchester is showing up, they're searching his house, and the detective opens the rubbermaid container that wasn't there before and realizes, oh shit her he he knew he knew something was off he didn't know it was a torso at that moment but right before this happens steven's like i'm gonna get caught he's like i am gonna go take the family dog for a walk so he goes walking down the block with the dog goes to his unsuspecting kind neighbor who allows him to borrow his truck because he's like hey i need to borrow your truck can i can i borrow your truck and the neighbor's like yeah sure like absolutely you're my neighbor i trust you wow yeah so he gets in this bright yellow truck that he borrows from his unsuspecting neighbor. And he was able to leave because obviously he wasn't under arrest. He, yeah. They were just serving the search warrant. So while they're searching right before they find the torso, obviously he's not there. He's walking the dog. And then he goes and borrows that bright yellow truck from his neighbor, drives straight to his sister's house, steals her um, prescribed medicine. Now, there was uh, conflicting reports whether it was a sleep aid or if it was Vicodin. Mm-hmm. But he stole her medicine because he was going to commit suicide. Okay, so he gets alcohol, pills, drops the dog off with his sister. He has such high regard for this this little dog, which I love dogs, but he leaves it with his sister so nothing bad happens to the dog, but he has no cares in the world about chopping his wife up into a million pieces. And hiding her head because he doesn't want her staring at her while she's dying. Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. He leaves the dog with her and he drives to a state park where the family owned a cabin. And this was significant because this is where they had spent their honeymoon. Oh, okay. So he goes there, and that's where he wants to commit suicide. So when he does this, he also there was also reports about him writing his suicide notes and all of that. But along with that, he had a toy gun. I only found that in one article, but I don't know if it's true because it was only mentioned in one, but mm-hmm. I want to mention it because he wanted to do suicide by cop. So he was going to pull this toy gun out mm. and like act like he was going to do something, hoping that they shoot him so he can die. Thinking they, he has a weapon, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he also took all the pills and was drinking his alcohol. They ended up finding out that he was going to that area because the phone calls 
were pinging. So they found him from his phone calls. So he makes a phone call to his sister and the au pair, and he tells the au pair that he loves her and that basically he's going to commit suicide and all of these things. So she calls police right after they hang up and tells oh, wow. him, hey, this is what's going on. And she's in Germany at this point. So all of that's going on. And I don't know if she let them know that's the area, but she, she let them know that she got a phone call. So then they start tracking his phone and they're realizing the pinging. So he was over 200 miles away at this point. Oh my so gosh, this, that's far. Yeah, it's very far. And because it was a middle of a blizzard while all of this is going on, it's 14 degrees. When they finally caught him, they had to have assistance from the Coast Guard to help them because it was like a multi-county manhunt for this guy because mm -hmm. they knew they knew he was the guy yeah. all the evidence points to him and he literally has pieces of her in the garage so when they finally catch him he's only wearing a shirt slacks and socks no boots no coat no gloves no nothing because he got hypothermia so he started getting a little delusional then he got well and when you have hypothermia you start taking your clothes off because you think you're hot even though you're cold exactly so he must have been like stripping. Yeah, that's and that's what they said. He ended up getting frostbite on his like feet. <laughs> and so if you ever look up photo and this is why I think it's he's just so stupid. Like it just shows yeah. how dumb he is. He is in his court tr his first hearing since then and he's like wrapped up and like his feet are wrapped up because he had frostbite on his toes <laughs> and his feet. So he just looks absolutely like a joke. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. From there, they capture him safely, as safe as they could capture him after him being a total idiot. They take him to the hospital. They're treating him. They're like, yeah, he's good to go. So they, they escort him to jail where he stays until he waits for his trial. But shortly after his capture, the police start searching Stony Creek again because they obviously know there has to be something there. That's where the bystander found the other evidence. Then they mm -hmm. found this torso. So they know there's other pieces. So they are assisted by cadaver dogs. And at this point, they found a lot of Tara's body parts, but they never found all of her. Which, that's crazy. Yeah. And I found, like, r different reports. I don't know if this is true because there are so many reports, but I'm just going to mention it. But don't quote me on it. They found only 11 of the 14 pieces. So there's other parts of her still out there in Stony Creek. For sure, we just don't know how many. Wow. Um, or at least I don't personally know how many because there's conflicting reports. That's wild. So at the hospital, he's charged with first-degree murder, and then he was taken to the police facility. That same year, on December 21st, Stephen Grant was sentenced to 50 to 80 years and convicted of second-degree murder. And the reasoning behind the second-degree conviction was because they couldn't decide if it was premeditated or not. But his defense team only wanted him to serve 15 to 20 years, but the judge and the prosecution sentenced him to the 50 to 80 because they were like, no, this man's evil, he's disgusting, and he's malicious, and he mutilated the person that he was supposed to care for and love, and not to mention she took care of him mm -hmm. like she was the main provider for that family and i don't know too many people out there that can have a full-time job and a whole flight away as i'm like it's easier for guys they can get on a flight they can go whatever but for women it takes a lot and it takes a special type of person to be able to travel that often knowing you have two beautiful little babies at home but she wanted to give those kids the best life she could i also think of the situation of how they had a woman come help and he only had a part-time job yeah it was a part-time job i mean he could have picked up and worked as much as he wanted but she wanted to make sure those kids had someone no matter what happened that way 
she's not going to be home all the time, so they're going to need they need childcare. Yeah. Well, no. My point of saying that is, it's like pathetic because you had a part time job and your other part time job was to take care of your children, mm-hmm. a basic necessity of when you have children, and yet you couldn't do it all and so you have help and yet you're still so resentful towards your wife like that's crazy and then on top of that you want to backstab her and sleep in the bed that she probably paid for in the house she's paying for for you to sleep in the bed and the help she's probably paying for and the help she's paying for too you want to disrespect her like that and then sleep in the bed while she's working her ass off to make sure that you have the best life that she could provide for you yeah On April 13, 2007, he wrote his confession, killing his wife, the full confession. They viewed it in court, and that's why he was convicted of the second-degree murder. His earliest release date is 2057, and he'll be about 80 years old. He's never expressed remorse. The only thing he's ever said was, I feel horrible for what I did because it's going to affect my children. Not horrible for what I did because I killed the person that took care of me, and I promised to love and cherish until death do us part. You took their mother away from them. absolutely literally no reason for no reason why because you were insecure you felt less than because she was the breadwinner she took care of everything she made the ultimate sacrifice not only is she working her ass off to take care of you she's also giving up time with her children to make sure that you had the life that she could provide for you yeah the life that you're living after all of this has happened The house was sold, and the neighbors to this day just try to forget the tragedy that happened next door to them. They they try not to talk about it. Stephen's father committed suicide not long after this because he was so distraught about what his son did because he knew he did it. He was disgusted, and he committed suicide. Which I feel like is almost worse that you would let him win because now your grandchildren don't have a grandfather. Yeah. Like, that's what I, that's how, like, I think of it. But I know suicide he was, is... He was just racked with guilt. Yeah. From I, what everything I've read. I know suicide is more than just killing yourself. There's a lot of mental health to go through something like that. But still, like, oh my gosh. Steven still has contact with his sister. His sister now has a brother who's in jail for ruining his family and killing someone and mutilating his wife. She's racked with the guilt now that her dad committed suicide because he was so distraught about this. According to articles, the children have, they have no desire to have contact with him. So his kids are now in their teens. I think they're oldest, and I didn't want to mention the names because I think that they deserve their privacy. Oh, of but course. But you'll definitely be able to find them because they are actually advocates now for domestic violence. But I just didn't want to mention any of their names. So, they don't want any contact with him. They don't really have much contact with his sister either. But I know his his sister wanted to take custody of them originally. Oh, wow. But Tara's sister, her only sister, was like, no, they're mine. They're coming with me. And she won the, the custody battle. Yeah, which I kind of feel bad for his sister because, I mean, it's She's, not like she did it. She Yeah, she didn't do anything. And it's not like she knew that it happened and, like, kept the secret or something, you know? Yeah, so she, I feel like... She got punished for something that he did. He did. Yeah. He ruined his his family, Tara's family, and the future for his children to have a life with their mom. Mm-hmm. And aunt. Mm-hmm. So what has come from this event actually is a really good thing. Like Sarah was saying, his kids and Tara's sister created something beautiful from such a tragedy in their lives that will affect them until the day they die. So in 2007, Tara's walk started, which is a 5K held annually 
the first Saturday before the start of October. It is to promote domestic violence awareness and prevention, and money raised from this event goes to the Terra Liberation Fund, which provides emergency cash assistance for domestic violence survivors. This event is held in collaboration with Turning Point, which is a Metro Detroit help service, which was established in 1980 for domestic violence and sexual violence victims. Turning Point offers a wide variety of services, and you can check them out on their websites, turningpointmacomb.org. Turning Point holds many events to get the community involved, and they also have a secondhand shop called Secondhand Rose. They're always looking for volunteers, but they do use the proceeds to help support these victims in all forms. Speaking of events, a month from today on September 25th, they will hold the 14th annual Tara's Walk. So if you've took the time to listen to Tara's story and if it resonated with you in any way and you live in the area, or even if you don't, they do offer a virtual 5K you can join. Tara's Walk this year. You also can check out Tara's Liberation Fund, and even the smallest amount of money you can donate could mean the world to someone's loved one. You can donate by going to the Turning Point's website. We'll link all the information in our posts. Events like this give power to the victims that have been stripped of their power over and over again by the people they loved and trusted. These events not only raise money for victims, but it can show them their community is backing them up. Domestic violence happens to more people than you think. Most victims are not going to go right out and tell everyone, hi, I'm a domestic violence victim or survivor. This type of violence can be lonely and it can feel endless because most of the victims feel like they have no one to talk to because they don't want to cause further issues with their partners or their family or friends. They may also fear that no one will believe them or they believe that the person that's supposed to love them will actually change. And you also have the issue of they don't want to feel ashamed, embarrassed, scared of what people will say about them. Exactly. Just for reference, 50% of domestic violence is not reported according to the Federal Bureau of Justice Statistics. And 75% of the abused women in a domestic violence cases that are murdered end up being murdered after they have left. So... It kind of fits with Tara's situation. She she told him, she's like, you're going to jail. You're done, dude. Like, mm-hmm. get out. And then he panicked and he was like, no, actually, not. that's not going to happen. You're going to die. Instead of him, you know, maybe going to jail for a domestic violence case, he, he could have gotten maybe six months of jail, maybe a little longer, maybe a little less. Or maybe nothing from not having previous issues. But he, uh, yeah, they didn't have any um, recorded prior issues. He did, though. He had been in trouble with the law a few times for, oh, like, okay. shoplifting and things. He had a troubled oh, okay. childhood. However, nothing from their home was ever, like, called in or anything. So mm-hmm. he could have had a very, very light to no sentence or maybe a little longer but now he's going to be 80 years old when he gets out of jail and if he lives that long hopefully he doesn't i just wanted to briefly talk about a domestic violence diagram which has always been something that i have thought about when you think of domestic violence so a lot of times victims will experience tension which that's the arguing and everything and then they'll experience the violence and that's you know obviously it could be as extreme as what happened to Tara. And then they'll also go right back into the honeymoon phase where they're sorry, they, they'll change, they'll do all these things. So it's this like vicious cycle and like everyone's always like, well, it's her fault, she didn't leave him. Now you're a victim blaming for one. Mm-hmm. But domestic violence, it's a circle. 
you, you think that you the person that you love and trust is going to change because that's what they say they're going to do. They start getting you the flowers you're asking for. They're going to stop hitting you or they're going to stop cussing you out. And then it goes right after they, they believe that you're, you're changed, it goes right back into the tension and the violence and then the honeymoon. And it's just a circle and circle. And people that do know victims of domestic violence, that's usually what happens. It's mm-hmm. just a constant. And they always think the person's going to change because they want to believe in the person that they love. And I'd also like to mention domestic violence is not always hitting. There is also verbal violence, like verbal abuse violence, and it's just as serious. It's just as traumatizing to the victim. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people even think of that, but words and actions and it's, it's just as wrong. And, you know, you say that. Words can almost mean more because when someone hits you, you, your bruise and stuff, it heals, but the words can replay in a victim's mind over and over and over. The bullying, that always will create a trigger now in their next Mm -hmm. relationship. Oh, well, my ex used to say this and then right before that he would hit me Mm -hmm. or he would hit me after he'd say those things or he he would call me stupid and now they always have that in their head. Oh, I'm stupid. I'm this. And, And then it's like this prophecy that they're fulfilling because... You've told them that forever. You're dumb. Yeah. You're this. You're that. And they will believe it. And they finally will believe it because after you hear the same thing over and over again, finally you think, oh, I really am the loser that they keep telling me I am. I'm mm-hmm. never going to amount to anything. Just keep that in mind when you're listening. And when I did this case, this is a quote that replays in my mind from reading this case. And it's actually one of the things we said in the beginning. Tara's sister said, I think people gravitate to Tara's story because she was such a normal person, an upper middle class family, businesswoman with two kids. They can relate to it. Too often we have the misconception that awful things happen to the poor and that's not the case with domestic violence. It doesn't have any boundaries. Anybody from any circumstance can have domestic violence happen to them. And you know, it could be your neighbor. It could be your best friend. It could be literally anyone. So just checking in on a friend that you haven't spoken with in a while, just ask them how they're doing. You never know what's going on behind closed doors. Like she was saying, it literally can happen to anyone. And people are so good at hiding things that you would never imagine that it's happening to someone. And it is. Mm -hmm. And that's honestly the most terrifying part about it. Yep. So if you or anyone you know is in a domestic violence situation, please know that you have a community of people willing to help you and make sure that you and if you have children will receive the help you need to get out of those situations. Tara's Liberation Fund is open for anyone. It's not just, you know, the upper middle class white woman. It's Mm -hmm. any single person that is in a situation like that. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233 or text START to 88788. If you need advice on how to handle a situation as a friend or a family member, even as a person on the receiving end of the domestic violence. If you are in fact fearing for your life, please do not chance it. Call 911. You never know when a situation is going to escalate. And as always, follow us on social media at Crime Connections Pod on Instagram and Crime Connections on Facebook. If you like listening to us, subscribe and leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.